I want to begin this morning where I left off a week ago. We said that the kingdom of God is the presence of God in a particular place where the people of God do the work of God in the power of God, in the way of God. This is what Jesus came to tell us. The reason he told stories, the reason he raised the dead, the reason he preached sermons was to reveal to us what the kingdom of God was like. For the kingdom, we said last week, is an invisible world. But it's a real world that runs parallel to the one we're in right now. It's like a fifth dimension, an invisible sphere that runs right next to our heads. And yet the people that live there and the things that happen there in real time right now are real and even tangible, but we cannot see them. And there is no way to see them unless someone from there would come and tell us. So this is what Jesus came to do. He said, the kingdom of heaven is like, and then he told parables in Matthew 13. He said, seek first the kingdom of God in Matthew chapter six. He said, I confer unto you a kingdom like the one my father conferred unto me in Luke 22. He said to the disciples, come, those who are blessed by my father and inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the beginning of the world in Matthew chapter 25. To be a Christian then is to live today in the kingdom of heaven. The goal of Christianity is not to get to heaven after we die. It's to get there, said Dallas Willard, before we die. By becoming the kind of people in this world that are common and ordinary in that one. So we spent last week talking about how one enters the kingdom of heaven. We looked at 12 entrance sayings where Jesus said, this is how one enters the kingdom. And we summarized that into two main themes. One is that people who live in the kingdom were born into it. Jesus said, you shouldn't be surprised at this. Unless you are born of the Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. And so there must be a miracle whereby God puts new life inside of us. A life that is not our life, but is attached to our life. And as it grows, it brings us into the kingdom of God. We enter the kingdom because the kingdom has entered us. The second theme was that we produce the fruit of the kingdom. We do the will of the Father. We get rid of anything that competes with the kingdom. We sell all that we have in order to possess the field that the kingdom is hidden in. It's that kind of obsession with, a preoccupation 
with living in this world like everyone lives in that one. Jesus says, if your heart is bent in that direction, you're near the kingdom of God. Now, the question then is these people that have entered the kingdom, how do they live with each other? What is their behavior? When someone wants to join another country, the, the common procedure is to take an oath of allegiance whereby you declare your loyalties to the country that you want to join. So for instance, if you want to join the United States, you have to raise your right hand and swear to protect our constitution and laws from all enemies, foreign and domestic, and to bear true faith and allegiance to the same. Amen. In the UK, you bear that allegiance to a person, not to a set of laws. You raise your hand and you swear to be faithful to Her Majesty the Queen. In other countries, the Philippines, for instance, you have to renounce things that you formally belonged to in order to join that country. There, you raise your hand and, quote, renounce absolutely and forever all allegiance and fidelity to any foreign prince, state, sovereignty, and particularly to the blank, that's the country you used to belong to, of which I was subject or citizen. Then after that, you swear to accept and recognize the supreme authority in this land and maintain true faith and allegiance. So in every country you want to join, you do it by declaring your allegiance. And this is true for the kingdom of God. We have to declare our allegiance to the king, who is Jesus. But what does allegiance look like? And how does it act? And what does it call for? Is it just an allegiance to a set of laws like other countries? Or is there some underlying ethic that holds everything together? In Jesus's mind, there's one law. that you love one another. Jesus said, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Later on, he said, as the Father has loved me, I have loved you. Now remain in my love. Later on, he said, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loves is born of God and knows God, for God is love. 
Now we come to a fork in the road. Actually, there's two of them. The first one will separate us from all other religions and put Christianity on a road by itself. The second fork in the road will separate you from most other Christians and put you on a road where you are with only a few others. At the first fork, the Christian believes that the central attribute of God is love. Padre, is God really like Jesus? The soldier is dying in a field from wounds. Tom Torrance, who would become a great theologian a generation ago, was a chaplain in the military and went over to his side, remembers the story, says, I looked into the boy's eyes and he knew that his life was slipping away. Asked him if he needed anything. What could I get him? And he said, Padre, is God really like Jesus? I assured him that he was, said Torrance. But later on, when I went back to my congregation in Aberdeen, an older woman in the waning months of her life asked me the same question. She said, Reverend, is God really like Jesus? Torrance said, I assured her that there is no God behind Jesus with whom we have to deal. When we look at Jesus, we are looking into the eyes of God himself. And yet many of us have no trouble believing that Jesus loves us, but God we're not sure about. The Christian makes a radical department from this and says, God is exactly like Jesus. You couldn't know what God was like were Jesus not to have come into the world. For love is not something God does. Love is not something God feels. Love is something God is in his essence, such that if he was not love, he could not possibly be God. It is his nature. He didn't learn it. He can't forget it. He was always this way from the beginning. Everything he does, he exudes love. And so when we separate God's love from every other attribute of God, that attribute becomes an idol. Yet this is what we have done with attributes like truth and justice. We've pursued them as ends in themselves because we've detached them from the center that is love. But the love of God is a different kind of love. The love that we have for one another is a love that, that, that goes after something that is already in the other person. We, we find them attractive or charming or intelligent or pleasant. And so something in us longs for these things and we go after it. But with God, it is not this way. The thing that attracts us to other people will, 
They were never in those other people until God loved them. And then because he loved them, they became attractive and intelligent and charming and pleasant. They did this because their personalities grew out of God's love. He saw that before it was there and he called it into existence. So the love that God calls us to flows out of his essence. Once we understand that, Christian, we understand that we are in a fundamentally different kind of religion, not only from other religions in the world, but sometimes from the religion we grew up with in church. This means that God is not opposed to you. This means that God is not trying to get rid of you. He wants you in the way that you want to be wanted. He's not holding a standard over you and just seeing if you can make it. He is finding ways in Christ to help you become the person he knows you can be. God is love. That's a fundamentally different God. The second fork in the road is even more interesting, more personal, I should say. One day when Jesus was arguing with the Sadducees, wished I could have seen some of that argument, a lawyer came up and and he heard Jesus answering and he was impressed with his answers. And so the lawyer said to Jesus, I have a question for you. Of all the commandments, which one is the most important? Jesus said, well, the most important one is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, and your mind, and your strength. And then he said, the second one is just like the first. You love your neighbor like yourself. And the lawyer said, That's a good answer. He said, in fact, to love the Lord your God with all of your understanding and all of your heart and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all the sacrifices and all the worship services. Jesus said, you're not far from the kingdom of God. What Jesus said, does in this moment is a couple of radical things in this revolution of love as religion perceives it. The first thing he did was to marry two laws into one. He linked them so the love of God and the love of others were the same love. One never loved God and then waited to love others. One loved others at the same time that they were loving God. He linked them. Tragically, whenever religion, Christianity included, separates its love for God from its love for others, 
it becomes dangerous. And we should drop it. Because Christian, love is the essence of who our God is. It flows out of him. One cannot possibly love God as God wishes to be loved until he loves others. And one cannot possibly love others as they wish to be loved, whether they know this or not, until we love them with the love that God is. Whenever we become so focused on the truth and the righteousness and the justice of God and presume that by loving him so much, these other people just drive us crazy. They hold us down. They don't meet the standard. They just don't get it. We have not proven our love for God at all. We have separated what in Jesus's mind is one. Once Jesus and his disciples were walking on a road toward Jerusalem and they came to a Samaritan village. And when they got there, the elders from the village, realizing that they were Jews, met them at the gate and told them they couldn't come into the village. They had to go around. Well, this angered the disciples. And so they went to Jesus and they said, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and consume them? It's worth Stopping for a moment to note that what the disciples were asking Jesus is the very same thing every one of us have wanted or asked for at one time or another. We think of these people, these people who are not like us and they don't like us and we don't like them. People like the Muslim extremists or the white supremacists. People that are dope dealers in our community. People that are sex traffickers and domestic abusers and drunk drivers. People that are pedophiles. People that scam and prey on the elderly. We have most of us, have we not, asked God at one time or another, can we call down fire from heaven and eliminate these people? And we do this in our devotion to righteousness and in our passion for justice. We ask God to eliminate others of his own species. He cannot do this. Christian, your God is incarnate. What does that mean, you say? It means he is not just spirit, he is flesh. 
And he is not just your flesh. He's someone else's too. Jesus turns to the disciples and says, you don't know what spirit you are of. If someone is not against us, they're for us. Don't you know this? When I listen to us argue and um, label one another and cancel one another and attack one another, fight with one another and overpower one another, we dismiss and marginalize one another in the name of righteousness. We have some other God in our mind. For the God of the Christian exudes love in all that he does. And he is never so obsessed with his own ideas that he can just eliminate people who don't have the same ones. That is not our God. That is some other religion's God. Whatever the symbol on their doors. The second thing and the last thing that Jesus did was prove to us that the love of God was indiscriminate. It was incommensurate to what other people deserved. Say, well, what does that mean? It means the love of God never repays in kind. It absorbs the offenses of others, grievous offenses, and out of love, it returns a soft answer. There, this story, this story of the lawyer and Jesus having a conversation, it also occurs in the gospel of Luke, by the way. And it begins when the lawyer says to Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, you know the word, how do you read it? And the lawyer says, well, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor like yourself. And Jesus says, that's a good answer. Go and do that and you will live. Then Luke says, wanting to justify himself, the lawyer says to Jesus, well, then who is my neighbor? That was an old debate 
old debate thousands of years ago back in Leviticus 19, the holiness code twice. We are told to love our neighbor as ourselves. And so we're told the rabbis in Jesus' day conducted long undulating arguments about what exactly was meant by neighbor. The question of course is flawed because the only people asking the question are not wondering who they can love, but who they don't have to. So Jesus tells a story of a good Samaritan. You know this story. But read it again and ask yourself, who is the neighbor and who is the hero? In the story, Jesus says a man was beaten up, thrown by the side of a road. A priest came by, crossed over to the other side and did not help him. Later, a Levite came by, crossed over and went by and did not help him. Then a Samaritan. And if you're a Jew listening to this, you are recoiling in fury because Jesus has chosen the kind of people you can't stand. Jesus says, in effect, the person you can't stand, the one who is not like you and the one you don't like, he came upon the victim of someone else's violence and he went over and bound up his wounds and transported him to someone who could help him and then volunteered to pay for it out of his own money. Now, who is the hero, says Jesus. And the lawyer can't even mention his name. The lawyer says, well, I guess it would be that guy that showed compassion. Jesus said, go and do that. Sir, the answer to your question, what must you do to inherit eternal life is to go and do what your enemy just did. Showed compassion on his enemy. Sir, your enemy is the hero and you are his neighbor. Go and do that. And you will live. Church, we live in a day where the nation is deeply and closely divided. And we have allowed ourselves, Christians I mean, to be pulled into the rabble back and forth. From the right, we hear calls for righteousness, law and order, law and order. Establish the rules, consistency, rightness. And from the left, we hear calls for justice. Overturn the hierarchy, reparations, equality, equity, revolution if necessary. 
And the church has gotten pulled into these arguments until the rhetoric that we use and the story that we speak from is like that from the world. And we have severed our love of righteousness and justice from the higher law, which is love. And our righteousness has become self-righteousness and smugness and rightness and the capacity to win an argument. And our justice has become revenge, envy with a smile on its face. We have, many of us, created our own victims while we argue in the name of God. But it is a God without love. It is a religion devoid of love. Each side is waiting for the other side to change. Each side wants to write laws and new initiatives that will control the country in their way. But people, listen to me, the way that the nation is changed is not by the changing of laws until there is a change in a human being's heart. Who will go first? Who will cross the road? Who dares to forgive the perpetrator? Who has the nerve to bless those who curse them and pray for those who mistreat them? Who has the stamina to do for someone else what they wish that person would do? Who is foolish enough to give to someone they know cannot repay them? Who would give their coat to the person who just stole their shirt? Who would stand there after getting hit in the face and with fist clenched, half cocked, turn the cheek? Who will go first? Who will go first? Friday, December 20th, 1974. It's the last day of school before Christmas break. Young Chris Carrier is 10 years old. He's on his way home from school. Car swings over. And a man identifies himself as Chuck, says he's a friend of Chris's father. He's planning a party to celebrate Chris's dad. He needs help with the decorations. Would Chris please help him? The young boy, not knowing any different, gets in the car. 
And Chuck drives straight to a remote area outside of Miami and begins to abuse the boy. He would not know until later that Chuck was actually David McAllister who worked for Chris's father and Chris's father released him because of his drunkenness, his perpetual drunkenness. David McAllister has a score to settle. There in an isolated part of the woods outside of Miami, McAllister stabs the boy multiple times in the chest, throws him back into the car, drives west towards the Everglades, pulls him out, fires a gunshot into his eye that exits his right temple, leaves him on the road for dead. Six days later, the boy regains consciousness in the hospital. He has permanently lost the use of his eye. The police department asks for identification of the man who did this. And by drawing a composite sketch Chris's uncle is able to identify the man. It's David McAllister, he says. I know him. He used to work for the family. He was released. The police want to make an arrest, but they cannot. They don't have enough evidence. Chris writes, that would have been the end of the story. But he writes, when I was 13 years old, something happened that changed my life. One night in a Bible study with my church youth group, I realized that God's providence and God's love had miraculously kept me alive. It was the basis for my life's security. In God's hands, I could live without fear or anger. And so I did. I finished my school, I earned a bachelor's, and then I earned a master's of divinity. I married my wife, Leslie, and now we have two beautiful daughters. 22 years later, the Coral Gables Police Department in Florida called Chris. And they said, the man that attacked you 22 years ago has confessed. His name is David McAllister. He is in a nursing home in North Miami Beach. You can see him if you want to. Chris decides to see him. He takes his two-year-old daughter. They go into the nursing home and stand at the bed of an old man who has lived alone all of these years with the regret of what he had done. Chris writes, he apologized for what he'd done to me and I told him I'd already forgiven him. In fact, I visited him many times after that, introducing him to my wife and my girls 
offering him some semblance of family in the days before his death. I believe that our friendship eased his loneliness and was a source of comfort to him after 22 years of regret. Many people can't understand how I could forgive David McAllister, but from my point of view, I couldn't not forgive him. You see, if I'd chosen to hate him all these years, if I'd spent my life working on revenge, then I wouldn't be the person I am today, the man that my wife and my family loves. Church, Every one of us has someone in our lives that annoys us, someone that has abandoned us and betrayed us and persecuted us, someone that is doing things to us for which we want justice. Who will break the cycle? Who will go first? Who will cross the road? Last week, I asked if you would write on that card your leaf, that thing that you niggle with, that you can't put down. Because that thing I said is there in the kingdom of God. This morning, without that card, I want you to say the name of the person I've just identified in your life. Say it, not out loud. Say the name. If there's more than one, we'll wait. Say the name. And if you have the nerve, I wish I could be here to see it. Think of this aisle right up here in front as that road. And maybe you cross it this morning. Maybe you take the name of that person and you bring them with you and you stand or you kneel in front of this railing up here as an act of consecration wherein you say, oh God, I will love my enemies. I will pray for this person who persecutes me. I will bless them when they curse me. I will give to them when they ask from me. I will forgive them before they ask from me. I will lend to them without expecting some reward. You cannot possibly love God like he wants to be loved. Because he loved you first. So every time you love him, it's in return for what he's done. If you want to love God the way he wants to be loved, 
unprompted, unmotivated love, you will have to love your enemy.